A topic that has held my fascination for the past few years is memory. It's just one of those things I can't read enough about, think enough about, hear enough about. People in healthcare, and tons of people not in healthcare, interact with people who are having disease processes that result in memory loss, such as dementias, traumatic brain injuries, chronic traumatic encephalopathy, and various strokes, to name a few. And it saddens us and forces reflection about who we are as human beings. It is somewhat ironic. We try to live our lives with the hope we will do things worthy of being remembered for, and yet many diseases of aging rob our memories. One of the reasons memory loss scares me so much is that I believe if I developed severe memory loss or the inability to form new memories, I don't think my life would have much meaning. Memory puts what you are experiencing right now and what you will experience in the future into context. And yet, the more one learns about memory, the more one realizes that memory is mostly imaginative reconstructions of our lives. Memories are really illusions of things that happened in much different ways than how we recall them. Digital cameras have recorded fixed memory storage. Our brains are nothing like that. Our memory and thinking are at the mercy of diverse influences. Therefore, understanding memory or lack of it leads to a deeper conversation of who we are and who we aren't. We as individuals have dispositions, referred to by psychologists as nature. We also are comprised of the sum of our experiences pertaining to what some call our nurture. How we recall nurture is never totally accurate. Let's ponder that illusion in more detail. Illusion does not indicate there is no reality. Rather, the word illusion refers to something that is not what it seems. An illusion is something that deceives by producing a false or misleading impression of reality. In a sense, a recall correlates to a mirage. We have all seen hot roads on a summer day make it appear like water is present, only to notice it disappear as the car gets closer. Viewing objects through a layer of heated air produces a real optical phenomenon that can even be captured on camera. Mirages are not hallucinations, but rather they are illusions. A mirage does exist, but that existence can be misleading. The mirage image is interpreted by the faculties of the human mind. Clearly, a thirsty traveler in a desert would see such mirages as water. A child may look at a road mirage as looking like water, but maybe it's because his parents tell him it looks like water. He may come up with that on his own, but perhaps if my parents first told me it is a sheet of glass mirage. I probably would think of glass first whenever I see such mirages on the road instead of water. But let's for a moment move away from nurture and how it changes recall to some basic neurobiology. Memory is influenced by new neural connections. Our memories are corrupted interpretations of past events that are manipulated recollections of real and imagined experiences. These memories occur 
when the circuitry of billions of neurons fire in patterns. And we must accept that the connections between those neurons is constantly changing. Which neurons become excited and fire versus which are inhibited is a dynamic process. A single neuron can make thousands of connections to other neurons. The pattern of connections is constantly being altered. As the circuitry changes, we as people change. After we are born, our brains grow in size and weight, and most of that growth is from the weight of increasing neural connections. In fact, so many connections are made by the time you are a toddler that some connections need to be eliminated, and that's a process called pruning. If there doesn't seem to be a purpose in maintaining a connection, perhaps it is too costly to maintain it. That point being, neurons build new communications while simultaneously eliminating ones that don't seem to be used. This process of building connections and pruning early in life contributes to critical development pathways. The experiments by psychologist Harry Harlow in the 1960s showed that social isolation of monkeys early in life resulted in tragically abnormal development. This was later seen in humans after the fall of the Romanian dictator Nicolae Ceausescu, who outlawed birth control in his impoverished country. In 1990, the Romanian orphanages were exposed by journalists and the conditions were horrifying. Ratios of one adult to 30 infants that rarely left the crib were common in those warehouses of children. Follow-up research shows that some babies rescued by adoptive parents before six months of age have often developed fairly normal. Those adopted after six months of age and had maltreatment environments frequently remain with social attachment and cognitive disorders because of their early neglect. MRIs actually show less white and gray matter in the brains of those former Romanian orphanage children many years later in their lives. The Romanian orphans are a dramatic example of the importance of neural connections. There can be sensitive periods of development early in life when some connections must occur or there can be lifelong developmental deficit. But even though our early years are critical, throughout life, neuronal connections and activation changes, even if the pace eventually slows down. Another major spurt of neural connections and pruning occurs with puberty, a fact probably not lost on parents raising teenagers. Puberty was once explained by the witty educator and self-described dissident feminist Camille Paglia. She explained that puberty is that brief moment in life of a male when he is no longer controlled by his mother and not yet controlled by his wife. Okay, so this is a hospital medicine podcast, so while discussing memory, I will be weaving in and out of discussions about brain diseases that we do see in the hospital. And since I was just discussing neuron connections, it may be worth briefly mentioning strokes. We are all aware that a stroke can have devastating effects on neurons. In the journal Stroke, in January of 2006, there was an article published, Time is Brain Quantified, and it drove home the point that rapid treatment of stroke is essential. Each minute 
is a really big deal. And I want to quote from that article for a moment. They say, in patients experiencing a typical large vessel acute ischemic stroke, 120 million neurons or 830 billion synapses or 447 miles or 714 kilometers of myelinated fibers are lost each hour in an ischemic stroke. In each minute, 1.9 million neurons, 14 billion synapses, and 12 kilometers of myelinated fibers are destroyed. And that's the end of the quote. So yes, time is brain, and that's why we try and do therapies like TPA as quickly as possible. It also shows why when you're losing that many neurons, it can have such a devastating effect on all kinds of brain and body functions, including memory. So that kind of destruction can be hopeless in huge strokes, destroying large parts of brain or very critical areas of brain. But for less severe strokes, we are more and more appreciating regeneration possibilities. So at this point, let me also acknowledge plasticity. There are books written about this, though I will just briefly cover it superficially and its relation to memory. There is ever-increasing appreciation about the plasticity of the brain or the ability of the brain to be molded and remolded. Later experiences after an event takes place will change the network of brain-neuron connections, which changes our recall of previous events. Plasticity helps in trying to overcome a neurological deficit from a disease like stroke, as we sometimes can make new connections. That is one of the major purposes and benefits of going to a good rehabilitation facility. However, plasticity and remodeling of the brain takes place each day whether or not disease is present, and that is why the self constantly changes. We can make a correlation to road construction. When new highways and roads are built, there are economic and social changes related to those new links. In a way, new road construction can be thought of in a similar way as new anatomical changes of adding neural connections. If you add or take away transportation options from a community, it has consequences in the same way adding or taking away neurons has huge consequences for the self. Let's take a moment to talk about emotion and interpretive meaning in memory because if we start understanding emotion and interpretive meaning in memory, it helps us understand some of the diseases that we see. Most of us recognize within ourselves that it is easier to retain information and learn about the things we are genuinely curious about. If you have kids, that point is often underscored when you are trying to get them to learn something they couldn't care less about. Likewise, it has been known for a while that if we are highly emotionally attached to an event, we remember it better. Whether it is a national event like 9-11 or a president being shot, your wedding, or some major personal event, we don't have to study the event to remember it. Other types of learning take a lot of repetition to form a long-term memory, but some events carry so much meaning that repetition is not needed to form a long-term memory. And if the event keeps reinforcing itself, 
like a recurrent torture or rape, the memory encoding is stronger. PTSD, or post-traumatic stress disorder, from a trauma, of course, correlates with an intense, well-encoded memory. Parts of the brain work together, like the amygdala that releases dopamine during episodes of intense emotion. The sensory system, like pain, sound, and vision, feed signals into the amygdala to associate those things with emotion and future response. That's why we can't point to one area of the brain in pure isolation, like the hippocampus, and say that is the only area responsible for memory. We must acknowledge the important role of the hippocampus that it plays in learning and memory. The hippocampus seems to be a key area affected in Alzheimer's disease. Reduced hippocampal volumes on neuroimaging is a risk factor for developing dementia, but when we discuss diseases like dementias, PTSD, stroke, or non-disease states, memory is a complex interaction between multiple brain areas. We should acknowledge that encoding anxiety into memory is in general a positive thing for survival. Don't touch fire. Being underwater becomes uncomfortable quickly, and getting hit hurts. Those are great lessons to encode into memory on the first go-around. When those anxieties are set off at the wrong time and set off frequently, that's a state of disease or not being at ease. There are esteemed scientists working on ways to keep those memories from causing paralyzing terror and numerous PTSD symptoms that can range from insomnia to suicide. Because so many brain areas are utilized in memory, not only is it challenging to treat memory-induced symptoms, but it should also be acknowledged that our recall in general becomes interpretive. If we see a swastika, most recall that symbol with a lot of negative associations. If we did a Pavlovian-like experiment where a child who never heard of Nazis was given a chocolate every time we showed him a swastika, we can all agree his recall of that symbol would be very different than ours. Symbolic representation and meaning of many things in our lives are indeed dependent on memory. Our memory therefore influences our life, but let's not look at how life can influence memory. Like walking through doorways is one example of a way life influences memory. Ever walk into a room and totally forget why you went into that room? Most of us can relate to that. And on December 13th, 2011, the Scientific American printed an article summarizing experiments about why that phenomenon occurs. The title of that article was, Why Walking Through a Doorway Makes You Forget. Experiments show that the ability to remember was worse after passing through a doorway than after walking the same distance within a single room. It may be that some forms of short-term memory information is best to keep in the context you need it, and then purge that information in favor of new stuff as your surroundings change. As I think about some of the negatives of this phenomenon, I also recognize there are some potential benefits. Mark Twain said, 
a clear conscience is the sure sign of a bad memory. And while I do love his humorous observations, good humor is often based in truth. Forgetting things and clearing the mind is not all bad. At the hospital, when I walk into a new room, it is nice to start with a clean slate and not be thinking too much about what happened in the last room. If passing through the doorway purges my mind so I can focus on the new venue I have entered, perhaps that focused attention may also benefit the patient I'm about to encounter in that new room. All right, so I think I will end part one about memory now, and we'll come back with part two during the next podcast. Hey, if you're getting anything positive out of this, go ahead and leave me a positive review on iTunes or whatever venue you're listening to this through. By doing that, you help other people find the lectures and the podcasts. So this is the Hospital Medicine Podcast with your host, Dr. Gil Peratt. Cheers, and see you on the next round.